hello and good evening. Uh, my name is Eric Neumeyer. I'm the head of the uh, Geography and Environment Department. It's a, uh, it's a great pleasure to have uh, back to LSE uh, Professor Scott uh, Barrett. Uh, Scott is the Lanfest Earth Institute Professor of Natural Resource Economics at the Columbia University School, uh, SIPA, of School of International Public Affairs and the Earth Institute. Uh, I say uh, back to LSE because one of Scott's greatest achievements is his PhD in economics from the LSE. Well done, uh, Scott. Um, uh, Scott, before uh, going to Columbia, he was uh, with the uh, London Business School first, and then he went to the uh, Johns Hopkins uh, University School of Advanced International Studies in DC. At that time, we tried to get him, but couldn't quite sort of compete with, I guess, the entire package that uh, uh, Columbia was uh, offering. Now, that was a, a, a great shame, because Scott is uh, simply uh, one of the best-known and best uh, environmental economists uh, in the world. I think that's wow. a fair assessment uh, to make. Um, he is, uh, he's made many, uh, many important contributions, but I guess it's fair to say that you're best known for your contributions to the economics of international environmental um, cooperation. And uh, sort of in this period is also tonight's uh, talk on climate treaties and approaching uh, catastrophes. Uh, Scott has written uh, many articles, uh, but also two books, uh, both of which I hear are outside uh, to buy, if you like, and Scott will sign them uh, for you after the lecture if you, if you buy them and bring them down. Um, one is uh, Environment and Statecraft, the Strategy of Environmental Treaty Making, um, published by OUP, Oxford University Press, in 2005. Um, and the other one, more recent one, Why Cooperate, the Incentive to Supply Global Public Goods, also published by uh, OUP. So no more uh, further ado. I, I, I will not, for the first time, I remember to mention the hashtag, which is LSE Climate. Is that right? Is it there? Oh, uh, hash LSE climate, uh, the Twitter uh, hashtag. Um, we will try and make this um, lecture available via uh, podcast as well. Scott, for how long will you speak? I was told 45 minutes. 45 minutes. So there will be plenty of opportunity to ask uh, questions. Okay. No further ado. Okay. Thank you very Good. much. Thank, Thank you very much. My goodness, this is a unique thrill for me because when I was at the LSE, so I arrived in 85. Uh, first of all, the LSE looked very different in 85, but also in those days there were very few people interested in environment. And that obviously has changed dramatically, and I'm very, very pleased to see that. And thank you very much for the invitation and the opportunity. Okay, so imagine that I, I'm a professor here at the LSE and you're my student, and the problem of climate change doesn't exist. We don't know anything about it, but I'm teaching a course, which I do, on global collective action, on addressing global issues, about international cooperation, about the international system. And I set an exam question, and the question I'm asking is, write down the most complex, daunting, uh, impossible challenge 
for the global system, by which I mean a system comprised of people, basically what's underlying all my work are the difficulties that people pose, and our institutions, which are ways in which we organize ourselves. So I set down the exam question, write down, you're going to make up, this is going to be hypothetical, you're going to make up the most difficult challenge imaginable for humanity. And your answer was to create this problem, which today we understand and call climate change. If you gave that answer, you would get an A. <laughs> because I don't think there's a more complex, more difficult problem, and a problem that really fundamentally is beyond the reach of our current institutions. So this problem is going to stretch and strain and pull our current institutions, and we're going to see how it all turns out. And that's what I want to talk about today, how it's all going to turn out. And as you know from the title, there is the chance of catastrophe. How does that matter? How does that affect our ability to address this problem? Okay, now, just as a, a preamble, when you hear about climate change, as all of us do through the media, this is going to be a, somewhat of a distorted caricature of how the problem is portrayed, but there's a strong element of truth in it. What I often hear are two things. Well, three things, actually, because in the United States you hear that it doesn't even exist, but we're not going to talk about that here unless you ask me in the questions. I, I assume that you agree that it exists. But the two, the two aspects of it are, one, that if we act to address climate change, it's cheap. It doesn't really cost us much. In fact, some people say we're going to save all sorts of money by, by doing this. And the other thing you hear is that if we don't act, the result will be truly catastrophic. Well, I can tell you for sure, have all the work I've done on international cooperation, if it were both of these things, actually, if it were either of these things, I wouldn't be giving this talk today because we would have already addressed this problem. The reason climate change is a difficult problem for us to address is because it is neither of those things. It's neither cheap to address, nor is it expected to be catastrophic in the sense of there being an existential threat with probability one that we really comprehend. Now, on the cost side, okay, what do I mean by this? What you have to understand about climate change is to get a grip on this problem, which is caused by the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. To get a grip on this problem, you've got to stabilize those concentrations in the atmosphere. Stabilization means that the amount we're putting in has to equal the amount that's being taken out. Now, when we throw CO2 into the atmosphere, some of it will stay there for thousands of years. This problem is more long-term than the problem of disposing of nuclear waste. And what this essentially means is, to stabilize atmospheric concentrations, you have to bring net emissions towards zero. But actually, because so much of it's going to stay there for thousands of years, you essentially need to bring emissions towards zero worldwide when markets don't want to do it on their own. Wow. I mean, I, I just don't know of a bigger challenge than that. And the idea that this is cheap is, I think, in, in my view, misleading. Now, it's worth doing. 
That's different, right? It's worth doing because all the economics that we've seen say that the benefits of acting are greater than the costs, but you can't ignore the fact that the costs are going to be high. This is a big challenge. On the other side of uh, the possibility of catastrophe, there is a possibility, that's what my talk is about, and it's one we need to take very seriously. Uh, but the, but we, there's so much we don't understand about the possibility of catastrophe. And I also think we need to be open-minded about what we even mean by the term catastrophe. And as a general matter, I would prefer to use that term in quotation marks because I think you need to ask what actually is catastrophe. And that will come out a little bit in my talk. So the reason that climate change is a problem for us, and in my opinion, more than anything, it's a problem for global collective action. If you ask why the world hasn't acted, I would certainly put all my money on that answer. Um, what I want to do is explore the way in which this possibility of catastrophe affects our ability to uh, bring about cooperation on this issue. Okay. Now the moment arrives. Can you use the technology? We'll see. Okay, there's the title. Good. Okay, so let me start off with the first treaty we have on the climate, the Framework Convention on Climate Change, adopted in 1992. It's quite an astonishing achievement. There is universal participation in this agreement. In fact, the only country, the last time I checked, the only country that is not a party to this agreement is the Holy See. I don't know why. Uh, I haven't asked, but uh, there is universal uh, support for this agreement. And the reason for that really is partly that the agreement is saying something very reasonable, and it's also because the agreement is not asking anyone to change their behavior. What it's saying that's reasonable is that we ought to take action to stabilize concentrations of greenhouse gases at a level that would prevent dangerous, and that's the term that I'm underscoring here, uh, anthropogenic, which is human, <laughs> uh, interference with the climate system. Okay, so all countries agree to this. Now, this is a framing of the negotiation problem. That's what it is. That's Article 2, that first treaty. That's telling us how we ought to look at this problem. Okay. And this is what I want to explore. Now, after the Framework Convention was agreed, certain people, negotiators, politicians, others, tried to define what dangerous meant. The Europeans led in this area, as they have in many areas involving climate, and the first time in international climate negotiations that the term was given quantitative <coughs> expression was in Copenhagen in, 19, in 2009 at the Copenhagen Accord, which recognizes the scientific view that the increase in global temperature should be below 2 degrees Celsius. So now they're quantifying what they mean by dangerous in interference. And what this is all implying is that there's a threshold. If you stand on this side of two degrees, you're okay. If we cross that threshold, we're in big trouble. Without defining exactly what big trouble is, we're in big trouble. Something changes very dramatically as you step over the line from one side to the other to two degrees. So that's the, um, the politics, more or less. And I think what's interesting here is that Copenhagen tells us that this is the scientific view. It's not that this is just a political decision. If you look at the science, uh, I'm not going to give a comprehensive uh, discussion of the science, but let me just point out three important p 
pieces of work trying to illuminate um, this question about dangerous climate change. One is, let's go to the main source, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. In this case, the third assessment report. I think this is from around 2001 or so. And they, they didn't address dangerous climate change directly, but what they did do was to point to reasons for concern. There were five reasons for concern. And they produced something which to insiders in this area is well known as the burning embers diagram. You'll see what I mean when I show you this picture, burning embers, okay? And you have basically five different categories here for danger. They include risks to unique and threatened systems, ecosystems, for example, uh, extreme weather events, and so on and so forth. And estimates are put, and you can see by the change in the color from areas that are yellow to areas that are red, red, of course, being the danger zone, um, that there was a sense there that certain temperature, and on the vertical axis you have temperature, certain temperature change would bring about very large uh, changes, which we might call catastrophic, or in their own terms, reasons for concern, rather not as exciting as catastrophic, so it's why it's not in my paper. If it were my paper, you wouldn't come to the top. Who wants to hear about reasons for concern? Anyway, um, now the, 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 the five bars on the right were produced uh, very recently in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences 2009. They were not in the fourth assessment report of the IPCC, so the separate paper was written. And you'll notice that on the right, the red is further down, which means that the scientists who wrote that paper believe that the threshold for these five reasons for concern uh, has tightened up since the third assessment report was written. And that's only a matter of years. Now, of course, what they're emphasizing is that there's been this greater reason for uh, concern, basically, right? A greater concern about temperature. Uh, but really, one thing you're going to read into this, I think, is that this is very uncertain. The thresholds that trigger change are uncertain. If they were certain, <laughs> the pictures would look the same. They don't look the same. So just a matter of a few years, the way these scientists look at this problem changed, okay? And this uncertainty is going to be very important to the story I'm telling. Another uh, piece of work that has attracted a lot of attention <coughs> by Tim Lenton and others, published in 2008, uh, identified tipping points. These were threshold points for dynamical systems involving certain geophysical subsystems like ice sheets and so on. And if you look at their paper, they've identified a number of thresholds all expressed in terms of mean global temperature change. And so these are the different physical systems you see on the left, loss of Greenland ice, for example, um, the shutoff of the Atlantic thermohaline circulation. If you look on the right where the thresholds are, they tend to cluster. First of all, they vary, but they also tend to cluster. And all of these are uncertain, right? All these bands are uncertain. It looks like there's one cluster to the left, uh, or to below 2 degrees C, and there's another cluster somewhere in 3 to 6 degrees C. You don't look at this picture and think, well, 2 degrees is the magic number, necessarily. It doesn't come that way to me, and there's a lot of variability around it. And then he updated um, this work in 2011 and attached his own interpretation to dangerous climate change. And what he's arguing in that work is that we need to worry not just about global temperature, but about local temperature, about radiative forcing, about concentrations of greenhouse gases, a much richer perspective on, um, on, on, on climate change. 
And what really is underpinning all of this is tremendous uncertainty. A paper, a very influential paper, was published by uh, Johan Rockström and others in 2009 in Nature. Uh, the paper was about um, planetary boundaries, and one of the boundaries discussed in the paper was about climate change. And the boundary they identified uh, was 350 parts per million CO2. What you need to understand about that, 350 pre-industrial, before we started, humans started playing around with the climate system, we were at about 280. Today, we're at about 200, uh, 390, 390. So when they say 350, this will be important for what I'm going to say later, that means we have to take CO2 out of the atmosphere. Remember what I told you before, a lot of it stubbornly stays there. So this is not a trivial task. Um, okay. This is a picture that comes from their paper on planetary boundaries. There were boundaries about other issues than climate change, but the key thing about climate change is they identified a single boundary, 350 parts per million, which implies that we actually know what the number is. So, first of all, 350 ppm is not the same as 2 degrees, so it's not the same as the number that appears in the Copenhagen Accord. Uh, but also, the idea that there's a single boundary is deceiving. Because when you read the paper, what they say is that they're concerned, among other things, with the stability of the large polar ice sheets, that the paleoclimatic record that we have suggests that there's a critical threshold for the ice sheets somewhere between 350 and 550. So when they look at that band of parts per million, and they're selecting the lower end of the band, what they're really saying, and they say it right in the paper, is they're picking 350 to ensure the continued existence of the large polar ice sheets. So in other words, uncertainty really underpins their own analysis. Oops. Okay, now, so that's, okay, the expression of concern, it appears in the Copenhagen Accord. I would say that the use of the term dangerous interference with the climate system had more influence on how scientists thought about this problem probably than was the case that science affected how negotiators thought about this problem. Certainly there has been interactions between the two groups, but what's very important to understand for our purposes here, since I'm interested in collective action, what are we going to do about this problem? At the latest climate meeting in Durban, the parties agreed that they would express grave concern, their words, the significant gap between the aggregate effect of parties' mitigation pledges, how much countries said they would do, said they would do. I don't know about you, but I say I'm going to do things all the time. I don't always, you know, carry them out. And I have guilt and other problems with that, but, you know, I get away with it. And uh, countries have a long history in this area saying they're going to do things and then not doing them. What they're expressing here is grave concern that the pledges that countries have made to limit their emissions are simply inconsistent with the goals that they have expressed for addressing climate change and particularly staying within two degrees centigrade change in mean global temperature. So why is it that countries would agree that we should stick to two degrees and then not even pledge, not, not even pledge to do the things required to get there? Okay? What this is really pointing to, I think, is a massive collective action problem. Okay, now what's going to happen when you get to 2 degrees C? So I've got this picture here, and it shows London flooded. When you think about catastrophe, a lot of us will think of Hollywood. You know, you sort of, 
imagine that everything's going to change overnight. You know, in one afternoon, we'll be flooded and, and life will change. And actually, it probably won't be like that at all. For example, the loss of ice in Greenland would involve um, somewhere up to seven meters of sea level rise, but probably over a period of 300 to perhaps 1,000 or even more years. So that's why I think we should be asking what we actually mean by catastrophe. I'm not going to answer the question. I think we should be asking what we mean by it. But what I'm looking at here is something that's a little more, a little more stylized just for our thinking, which is what I'm interested in, our thinking about this problem. If the consequences of passing two degrees C were truly catastrophic, as in this picture, would cooperation be any easier? That's what I'm asking. Okay, this picture here is Manhattan, where I teach. And so I'm asking the question, would the US, not the leader in this field, right? Would even the United States want to contribute to address this problem to stay clear of two degrees C if two degrees C were truly going to be catastrophic? Would treaties be more effective if their purpose were to avert catastrophe as opposed just to reduce emissions somewhat? So this is a picture from the front page of the New York Post. London has, of course, some of the best tabloids in the world, but New York has one that's also pretty entertaining. Uh, the headline here is, we're screwed. And the, that was after a report came out about climate catastrophes hitting New York. Okay, now I'm going to play a game with you, because this is all about games, basically. Of course, the subject is very serious. But the best way to understand collective action is to do it in a game. And I know this is a public lecture, but this is also the LSE. So I know that the capability of people here, even at this hour, which is rather late to be doing this, but I know that the capability here of people is great. So I'm going to try this out on you, and I'm going to need your attention just till I get through the games. It won't take too long, but I, please try to keep up with me here. Uh, these are very simple games, and of course they abstract from many important things, but the simple games are always the most revealing. So don't worry about the things that appear too simple. There will be a lesson in here that will be valuable. Okay, and the way I'm going to set this up, and you'll see later why I'm doing it this way, there are 10 players. Of course, in the world, we've got 190-something number of countries, but for the purposes of this lecture, 10 players. And you're going to start, so imagine yourself as being one of these players, and you're going to start with two operating funds. Okay. In account A, you have one pound. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot of money. <laughs> But this is a hypothetical game, um, so just stay with me here. Um, the, the, risk, the, um, the, uh, the stakes, obviously, on climate are very high. So you're one pound in account A, and you could spend the money in that account on windmills that will address climate change by what I'll call ordinary abatement. And you could have up to 10 windmills. Each windmill costs you 10p. Then you have another account, account B, in an account B, you have these machines that look like upside-down fly swatters. They are what are called air capture machines. These machines will literally take carbon dioxide out of the air and then stick it somewhere safe, underground. That's another way to address the climate problem. Let's take the CO2 out of the air directly. Air capture is very expensive. You have the capability to deploy up to 10 machines. They cost one pound each. So air capture is a lot more expensive than the windmills. What's interesting about this is that the windmills, deploying windmills alone will not allow you to avoid catastrophe. That's where I'm going to be taking this. Okay? You have to use a more advanced technology. Okay, so remember that. And then you've got a third fund. 
I could never give this lecture at another place. Only the LLC could handle this. You have a third fund, which is an endowment fund, and the third fund has 20 pounds. Okay, you can't spend that money, so it's just kind of out there. And the reason it's there is because I want to make sure that you're not out of pocket when you play this game. That's all. Okay, so the three funds. Now, how you want to behave will depend on the payoffs you're going to get from playing this game. So everyone gets to keep the money that you have left in your accounts. You get to keep that. Okay? Plus, you're going to get an extra amount. The extra amount is 5p for every machine that is deployed to remove or reduce emissions that result in higher concentrations of greenhouse gases. Okay? And one windmill is the same in terms of uh, addressing climate change as one air capture machine. All right, now, this is how it works. Imagine that you give six windmills and nothing from account B. So six windmills, but no air capture machines. And everyone else contributes 50 machines, and you don't care what kind they are because each machine removes the same amount of CO2. All right, then your payoff would be 56 because others are contributing 50 machines. You're contributing six machines. You get 5p for each machine, so you're going to get 56 machines times 5p per machine, plus you're going to have 4 times 10p for the windmills you're not deploying. That's the money that's staying in account A. Plus you're going to get all the money in account B. That's 10 pounds. Plus you get the money in account C, which was that extra endowment fund, 20 pounds. Add it all up. 33 pounds, 20. Okay? That's your payoff if you give 6 and others give 50. Okay, now let's see how this works. What's the best outcome for the whole world? The best outcome for the whole world is that everyone contributes all of account A. Everyone uses windmills to the maximum extent. No one uses air capture. Okay, why is that? Remember that air capture, each machine for air capture costs one pound. The benefit of deploying a machine is 5p for each country, and there are 10 countries, so you get 50p. If you deploy a machine, the cost is bigger than the benefit. No one's going to want to do it. Okay. So with full cooperation, every country is going to get 100, 100 machines, 100 windmills deployed, 5p for, per windmill, plus the 10 pounds in the count B, plus the 20 pounds in the count C, 35 pounds. That's the best you can do. But of course, what's interesting about this is that if countries pursue their self-interest, what they're going to want to do is keep all the money to themselves. Why is that? Even if you deploy the cheaper windmill, the cost to you is 10p, and what do you get back for it? 5p. 10p is bigger than 5p. There'll be a tendency for people to want to hold on to their money. Now, what kind of game is this? I'm giving you the answer. That's, it's a prisoner's dilemma game, and probably everyone has seen these games. It's a simplification, obviously, of the problem we're facing, but it's not far off. You know, fundamentally, this is the big challenge we have. And the thing about the prisoner's dilemma game is to overcome these incentives to free ride, you need to have enforcement capability. And every good treaty we have that addresses a collective action problem like this has enforcement capability. No climate agreement has enforcement capability. That's the central problem. All right, now I want to change that. That's looking at the world as if we only cared about gradual climate change. Now I want to consider catastrophic climate change. So suppose that there's a threshold which we can avoid if we deploy 150 machines. Now notice 150, what I'm saying here is you have to deploy not just windmills, but also the more expensive air capture machines. 
And going back to how I set this thing up, remember that Rockstrom and his colleagues are saying we need to go to 350 ppm. We're already at 390. The only way to get from 390 to 350 is to take some CO2 out of the air. So you're going to have to, if there is a climate emergency, be willing to use the more expensive technology. Okay, if there's a catastrophe, then there's an extra penalty, 15 pounds, you lose. So if the world deploys 149 or fewer machines, everyone loses 15 pounds each. Okay, so now just see how it works. Imagine that you deploy six windmills, no air capture machines, everyone else contributes 50 machines, then you would get a payoff 56 times 5p plus 40p left in account A for the four windmills you didn't deploy, plus 10 pounds in account B for the air capture machines you didn't deploy, plus the 20 pounds in that endowment fund, minus 15. That's what's different from before. Minus 15, that's catastrophe. And your total payoff then is 18 pounds 20. All right, so now we're going to do analysis of this game. What's the best you could do together? Now, the best is not the same as before. Before, the best was to deploy the windmills, but not air capture. Now, you want to avoid the threshold. And to do that, you have to deploy some air capture. So the best outcome is that the whole world will deploy 150 machines. That'll be 100 of the cheap windmills, plus 50 of the more expensive air capture machines. And the payoffs then, if you work out the algebra, very simple, 32 pounds, 50p, okay? Now, the thing about this game, of course, is that self-interest is going to make countries want to pull back and not make the contributions. If you don't contribute anything, as before, then you're going to keep all the money in account A, all the money in account B, all the money in account C, and you're going to suffer the loss from catastrophe, 15 pounds. Okay. Your payoff is going to be 16 pounds. That's a lot lower than we had before. That's the difference between gradual climate change and abrupt and catastrophic climate change. But this game is different, okay. because although self-interest makes you not want to contribute, if others don't contribute, it will make you want to contribute if the others contribute enough. Why? Because then, when you contribute, your actions can ensure that the threshold is avoided. So look at it this way. Imagine that everyone else contributes 138 machines. Remember, you need 150 to avoid catastrophe. If you contribute zero, which is the tendency if you're a free rider, you're going to get a payoff, if you do the math, of 22 pounds, 90. But suppose you contribute 12. That means total contributions go to 150. That means you avoid catastrophe. Then your payoff is 35 pounds, 50. That's a lot higher. So the incentives have been totally changed by catastrophe. Catastrophe, funny enough, is saving us, <laughs> okay? So self-interest really changes in this game. Now actually, there are two compelling outcomes in the game. One is where no one contributes. That was like we saw before. Because if no one else is contributing, you yourself, the most you can contribute is 20 machines. 20 machines will never get rid of catastrophe. Okay, so it won't help very much. Uh, but the other possibility, of course, would be that everyone contributes and you avoid catastrophe. And if you think about everyone doing the same thing, if everyone contributes 15 machines, there are 10 of us, 150 machines, we avoid catastrophe, we get a payoff of 3250. So one possibility is that we'll all contribute those machines, we'll get a high payoff, 32 pounds 50. The other possibility is we sit on our hands and we welcome catastrophe, we get a payoff of 16 pounds. Big difference.
Well, this is a totally different kind of game. And notice that I didn't play around with anything. I didn't, this is all coming to us from Mother Nature, right? The scientific view, this is about Mother Nature, about these tipping points in geophysical systems. This is not a precision dilemma. This is a coordination game. And coordination is something that the international system is exquisite at doing because coordination does not require specific enforcement mechanisms. <clears throat> Who's doing the enforcement in the coordination game? It's Mother Nature. It's not us. It's Mother Nature. Okay. I'm going to skip that. Now, there are two kinds. Uh, now, this, this game so far is with certainty. But remember what I said before about dangerous climate change is that the thresholds are uncertain. And this changes everything. Now, there are two kinds of uncertainty to think about. One is this uncertainty about the threshold itself. And as I said before, Rockstrom and his colleagues pointed out that to avoid loss of the polar ice sheets, you need to hold uh, PPMs down to 350 uh, or somewhere in this bounds from 350 to 550. Uh, there's also uncertainty about the impacts and uh, turning to the paper by Tim Lenton and his colleagues, what they show is that loss of the Greenland would add two to seven meters to sea level rise over 300 to 1,000 years. That's uncertainty about the impact. So these two kinds of uncertainties. Now, what does the theory say? So I have a paper underlying all this, very simple theory. Suppose, uh, let's focus first on the impact uncertainty. Suppose the loss wasn't 15 as I set it up in that game, but it was something, we didn't know what it was but it was probably going to be between 10 and 20. Or we were sure it was going to be between 10 and 20. We just didn't know what the number was. It turns out, if you look at the game carefully, this has no effect on behavior at all. In fact, it's very strong in this result because even if the loss were as small as 10 pounds, you would still have a coordination game. But what's going to drive people's behavior here is expectations about the size of the loss. Okay. So it's really important to understand that uncertainty about impacts has no effect on behavior, which means that the pleasant result I just showed you about coordination stands up to uncertainty about impacts. It stands up to that. So we don't have to worry about that, which is good, because that's actually where the economics come in would be much more about the impacts. But what about uh, the threshold? Uncertainty about the threshold, that changes everything. And remember, I said before, the threshold is uncertain. Suppose that the threshold isn't 150 for sure, but it's something like between 100 and 200, okay? Now, if you cut your contribution, imagine the whole world starting at 150. Before, if you step back from 150, went to 149, catastrophe would occur for certain, bad outcome. But now, because the threshold is uncertain, when you step back from 150 to 149, so you're saving an air capture machine, you're saving one pound, now you affect the probability of catastrophe by just a small amount. So notice the difference. Before you make a small change, the outcome has changed dramatically. Now you make a small change, the outcome changes by a small amount. Okay, that's the basic problem underlying the prisoner's dilemma. And in our, going back to the example we had before, if everyone else contributes 15 and you contribute 15, you get an expected payoff. Now I have to take into account here the um, effect of contributing 150 on the probability of catastrophe. If you factor that in, the payoff you would get is 25 pounds. 
if everyone contributes 15 and you contribute 15. If everyone contributes 15 and you contribute 14, so you cut back just by one, you get a payoff of 25 pounds 80, which is bigger than 25 pounds. There's an incentive to want to pull back. So actually what happens is that the game with uncertainty about thresholds is transformed back into a prison dilemma. And we do have uncertainty about thresholds. Okay, let's open this up a little bit more. Full cooperation, what's the best the world can get? It turns out the best you can do is to avoid catastrophe entirely by going right to 200. If, if the world deploys 200 machines, which would be the equivalent of bringing PPMs down to 350 in the Rockstrom uh, uh, analysis, everyone would get a payoff of 30 pounds. The world as a whole would get a payoff of 300 pounds. Starting from there, though, if you pull back a tiny bit, so you go to 199 units, your payoff is going to rise from 30 pounds to 30 pounds 80, but everyone else's payoff is going to fall from 30 pounds to 29 pounds 80. The total payoff actually falls from 300 pounds to 299 pounds. So, so what happens here is that the probability of catastrophe transforms the game back into a prison's dilemma with a strong incentive for everyone to pull back and to do a little less. And everyone's going to be doing that. So when I look at the Rockstrom paper, it's interesting. I told you before, they said the bounds were somewhere between 350 and 550. They picked 350 to ensure that we avoid catastrophe. Well, it turns out, in my analysis, that is the right thing to do if you were in charge of the planet. The problem is no one's in charge of the planet. We have 190-something countries. And you have this strong incentive to want to pull back. It's interesting that um, the result I get about favoring the 350, as in Rockstrom, it looks like the precautionary principle. Let's take action to avoid the risk of catastrophe. But there's nothing in my analysis about risk aversion at all. You don't even need it to get that result. OK. Now, if you're not convinced by this, this is just a little toy game that we're playing here. If you're not convinced by this, I'm going to give you a little more evidence. Uh, and that's based on work I've done with a colleague, Astrid Dannenberg, who is a postdoc now at the University of Gothenburg and who will be joining me at Columbia University soon. Um, the, the game that we played is the same game I just described to you, except that it's being played by students at a university in Germany with real money. Now, we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood of about 40 pounds or so, so this is not you know, catastrophe. This is beer money for students, but nonetheless, um, the students take the game very seriously. I'm going to tell you how they, how they played. We looked at um, four different treatments. The one is we have certainty over catastrophe. One is where you have uncertainty about the impacts. A third is we have uncertainty about the threshold. And a fourth is where you have uncertainty about both the threshold and the impacts. You've got 10 people playing, just like in the game that I described to you. And each game was played 10 times over, 10 different groups. Okay, so here are the results. Now, what the theory says is that if you have certainty, everyone should avoid catastrophe. If you have impact uncertainty, remember I told you it shouldn't affect the results at all. So again, everyone should avoid catastrophe. So we played this game uh, 200 times. Uh, sorry, we played this game, yeah, two, um, sorry, 20 times, 20 times. And in the 20 times we played it, only two groups uh, did not avoid catastrophe. So that's not too bad. 18 out of 20 is pretty good. 
It turns out, however, that the two groups that didn't conform to the theory, and you know, humans are like this, they're not always going to do what the models are saying, right? That's why we like um, the models, but it's also why we like people. They're infinitely more interesting. Um, it turned out that what happened here was that you had mischief created by just two people, one in each group. And in each case, one of the students pledged that he or she would contribute money and then didn't. And by the way, pissed off all the other students in their groups. And uh, so actually when you look at this, you've had 200 students playing, two out of 200 were bad apples. That's a pretty good ratio. 1% of the population, bad apples, that's better than my personal experience. Well, it's just like the US. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now look at the bottom part of the figure though. This is what, how the experiment turned out when you had uncertainty about the threshold, with or without uncertainty about the impact, which again shouldn't matter. The behavior is totally different. Now, no one avoids the threshold. And in almost all the cases, in fact, the probability of crossing the threshold was one. There's just some deviations from this. With the case of just threshold uncertainty, there was one group that was able to reduce the probability of catastrophe by 7%. That's not much. And when you had both kinds of uncertainty, there were three groups that reduced the probability a little bit, but never below 80%. Okay. So basically, what I'm saying here is that how we behave is entirely consistent with what the model is saying. This is what we are like. And the basic problem is us. We're creating this ch climate challenge, and we don't have the wherewithal it seems to address it. So what does all this mean? It means that if we understood catastrophe as something that was certain and that the impacts were huge, we would address this problem and these treaties would be enormously effective. But what the theory is saying and is supported by the experimental evidence that we can't rely on that. So what does that mean? This is all, everything I've talked about so far is ex-ante. That's before the bad things happen. But of course, there has to be a chance that they're gonna happen. Well, this cartoon here tells you what'll happen ex-post. So here in the cartoon, the good news, so you have here uh, Noah's Ark on top of Mount Ararat, surrounded by seas that are very high, close to the peak. And you have someone standing at the podium at one of these climate conferences. Yeah, we'll still have these in 2040, I'm sorry to say. And he says, good news, we finally have a binding international agreement to control greenhouse gases. But this is in 2040, and this is after disaster has struck. What I think this work is suggesting, you take seriously the probability of tipping points and catastrophe. You take seriously what the theory is saying, which, by the way, is entirely consistent with how countries have behaved there has to be a good chance that we're gonna actually experience a catastrophe. There has to be a good chance of that. So then what? Well, from an ex-ante perspective, what the work implies is that we need to focus a lot more on the problem of enforcement. That is the central problem. It is the greatest weakness in the approach we've taken so far to climate change is that we've failed to address the enforcement problem, even to the point where many negotiators don't even discuss it. They certainly don't emphasize it. I think that's absolutely wrong. How could we do better? Ex-ante, we could do better if we, take, if we took a different approach 
to negotiating the treaties. Not a different process, a different approach. In my opinion, the best way to do it is to take this large problem apart and to focus on individual pieces, where you get leverage for enforcement for individual pieces. And if I can leave you with one positive piece of news, it's that we can do much better than we have so far, and it's very easy to see that. One of the greenhouse gases in the Kyoto Protocol is called hydrofluorocarbons, HFCs. These are a greenhouse gas. They look like, they have commercial properties very similar to the CFCs that are controlled under this remarkable Montreal Protocol. Uh, but they don't destroy the ozone layer, and therefore they're not controlled under the Montreal Protocol. That treaty is a very effective treaty because it does address enforcement. What we should do is negotiate a protocol under the Framework Convention that is focused only on HFCs, includes the same trade restrictions as enforcement mechanisms as under the Montreal Protocol. That would be the first successful treaty for the climate. Now, that would only address a small part of the climate problem, but let's start with that. And then we could see that if you added another protocol on another gas, another sector, and so on, we could make some progress. Having said all that, I'll be entirely honest with you, I've spent 20 years working on this. I at least cannot figure out a way in which we could address this problem to the extent needed to stabilize concentrations. So that means we have to entertain the view about what will happen if and when catastrophe strikes. Now, what I think is probably going to happen, this is speculative, is we're going to deploy something called geoengineering. Some years ago, if I mentioned this term, no one would know what I was talking about. I think that's changed. I think probably quite a few people here have heard of the term before. This particular picture is a drawing of a, a very distinguished scientist who has worked in this area. His name is Lowell Wood. He was a colleague of Edward Teller's. If you were a Hollywood director and you were looking to cast someone as a mad scientist, he probably wouldn't be a bad person to use. He has this kind of, um, he, he kind of gives off this kind of impression of being a bit mad. But of course, it doesn't mean he's mad at all. It could be that he's seen things that we haven't really quite understood. When Rolling Stone um, wrote a piece on geoengineering, they used this uh, drawing. And you can see that uh, the impression one gets is of someone who's really quite crazy and that what we're talking about with geoengineering is uh, goofy, uh, crazy. Uh, but I think we look at it differently now. The Royal Society produced a report on geoengineering uh, in 2009 by very distinguished scientists in which they're taking the concept quite seriously. The approach, by the way, involves offsetting the effect of accumulating greenhouse gases in the atmosphere by throwing particles into the stratosphere that re reflect light away from Earth and therefore cool to offset the effect of the accumulating greenhouse gases. And we know this would work, by the way, because we have the experience of the Mount Pinatubo uh, volcanic eruption from 1991 that cooled mean global temperature about half a degree centigrade and for in, in just a very short while and sustained that for over a year. Uh, this is how it might look. Uh, there are all sorts of different ideas of how it would work. Uh, but you would, in this case, throw a balloon uh, with a pipe that was putting particles up into the stratosphere reflecting light. You think this is silly, but these are two pieces I've taken out of the Guardian newspaper. The one on the left uh, refers to an experiment that was to be conducted in the UK. Uh, I think it was scheduled for last October, and then it was postponed. I don't know all the details behind it. I can imagine 
that there was opposition to this. The experiment was not actually to do a geoengineering, but rather to see whether material water could be put up at a high level. Um, so it was really an, just a pure engineering, not a geoengineering experiment. Uh, following on that, there was also reported in The Guardian of the results of a poll taken of people in which there was some support for the concept. So I think all of our instinction, instinctive reaction to an idea like this is to be repelled by it and to just not take it very seriously. But if we start to see the climate changing and the results as being catastrophic, everything is going to alter. We're going to be willing to do things that from today's perspective we, not, we, we wouldn't be willing to do. Now, what else can I tell you about geoengineering? Well, it works fast. It can work very quickly. It probably couldn't avert every catastrophe. It may not work well. It will impose other risks. For example, throwing the particles, we throw sulfates into the stratosphere, they would actually uh, bring about some depletion of the ozone layer. And probably most importantly, this approach does not address the root cause of the problem. So the reason we would do it is they would act quickly, it would be very cheap to do, but we may not like the outcome. So what does that mean? That means I think we're going to try something else. What's that something else? It has to be something that will get at the root cause. And at this point, we're going to feel that we're in a kind of a climate war footing. And I think we're going to be willing to do something quite adventurous, quite ambitious, probably to involve deploying these air capture machines on a large scale. What, I'm, what I think you should take from this is not so much you know, the kind of literal um, uh, story I'm telling you, but think of all this as a metaphor of being, able to, being willing at this point, when you're facing catastrophe, uh, to take very dramatic steps. Uh, the economics, briefly. The social cost of carbon, which is a number that reflects the it's like a price you're going to put on carbon based on our understanding of the economics of all the effects of climate change on human societies everywhere on the planet and in the future generations. A value today, throw it out there, not a bad value, something like 50 pounds per ton of CO2. Air capture is more expensive than that. So one estimate of the cost of air capture that came out recently, a very high estimate, 375 tons, uh, pounds per ton of CO2. You compare those numbers, what it says is that today, as we think about climate change, it's not worth deploying the technology. But what I'm suggesting is once there's a catastrophe, all of this is going to be changed. The social cost of carbon won't look the same at all. It's going to jump because now we realize there's a huge cost to continue to emit greenhouse gases. And I think it's at that point that we'd be willing to deploy this machine. And this machine is the only option we have that is a true backstop technology. So in a crisis, we may want to use it. Just to sum up where I see all this going, the prospect of catastrophe needs to be taken very seriously. It will affect our ability to address this problem. But because of uncertainties, in the thresholds especially, it doesn't transform the collective action problem. We're still stuck with having to address this greatest challenge in human history using institutions that were never designed to address anything like this. Our institutions are just not compatible with the challenge. And what we're going to see then over a period of time is failure brought about by the institutions. Over longer periods of time, we'll see changes in the institutions, but I think there's a good chance they'll come too late. Thanks.
Scott, thank you very much for a most uh, fascinating uh, talk. Uh, we have now uh, about half an hour uh, for question and answer session. Uh, if you show me your hands, I will uh, select uh, a few. Um, wait, do we have mics? Yeah, wait until the mics come to you. Uh, please identify yourself and then please ask a question, not a, uh, give a mini lecture. Uh, please. So, can I see hands here? One over here. We start with you. Uh, Scott, should we collect sure. two or three and then... Yeah. Okay. First one there. First of all, I'd just like to say thank you very much. That was uh, very interesting. I'm no economist. Um, my name is Sepi Gozari. I work in the Department for Energy and Climate Change. Um, I was really... I mean, I think your, your, um, your model was, was really interesting and um, really helped me understand the uncertainty, impact uncertainty and threshold uncertainty to a degree which I hadn't before. Um, in your model, you assume that everyone has the same funds. Um, and obviously we know that, that you know, out of the 190 or so countries, that's far from the case. How does that affect your coordination model um, that's it, really. Thank you. Okay, thank you. All the way up. Uh, Scott, Oliver Morton from The Economist. I thought it was a, a wonderful lecture, but I'm intrigued by the back. I, I have some concerns, having just been at a meeting on air capture in Calgary, about the backstop technology. Because it's a backstop that doesn't actually kick in until about 50 years after you start using it. So if carbon dioxide, um, if, the, if there's a climate catastrophe, wouldn't that actually simultaneously decrease um, society's ability to make large-scale investments, especially on the basis that those investments would not actually bear any climate fruit for half a century? Can I ask, uh, Scott? Um, Reforestation. I can take the prerogative. Uh, reforestation, and particularly these these crops, um, which can grow in sort of arid regions, which are quite good at uh, capturing carbon. Uh, you didn't mention them at all. Can you tell us a little bit what you think about it? I think we'll stick with these three, and then we'll open up another round. Okay, these are great questions. So the first uh, question was asking. Well, we have in 193 or so countries. Uh, they're all different. Uh, how would the results change when you bring in this, uh, the term that is typically used is asymmetry, very different kinds of countries. Uh, you know, I think the main effect uh, is that it changes what countries would be willing to do on their own. Imagine that, just to keep it simple, you have 100 countries. One is huge, huge. 99 are very tiny then what would happen here is that the one country would look out at this problem almost as if the 99 didn't exist because they're so tiny. They don't create the problem. They can't do much to address the problem. So now, the, now what you have is the incentives for unilateral action. You've kind of done away with the collective action problem. The incentive for unilateral action would be very powerful. So actually, the assumption of symmetry is, is making the collective action problem greater and the need for collective action to be greater at the same time. I think when you have differences among countries, 
Of course, it makes agreement about what to do more challenging. I don't believe fundamentally that that's the reason we've not made progress. And if anything, asymmetries tend to help. The world tends to work better. I mean, think about this. We've gone from a bipolar world. We had something that some people call the unipolar world. It didn't last very long. And now we're moving towards something which, for issues like this, is best described as multipolar. This makes everything harder. Harder. So I think the uh, assumption about symmetry is really exposing something that's quite serious. And I think the difficulties the countries have to negotiate because of these differences, they're, all, they're mainly about deciding who's going to pay and that kind of thing. It's not really about addressing collective action. So I've not worried so much about asymmetries, even though I know that they can be important in the negotiations. Oliver, on your uh, question, excellent question. Well, first of all, if, if when catastrophe strikes and it's truly an existential threat, the game's over. Um, and, and nothing is going to work. <laughs> so for sure. And no, but that's a nice way of capturing what you just said. Um, so, but it's interesting, you know, what is catastrophic? And I think we're going to be challenged to define what we mean by that exactly. So if the impact of climate change is so devastating that our economies are, uh, are, are disrupted tremendously, our ability to organize is challenged tremendously, we'll, we'll lose some capability. I think that it's probably more likely that what will happen is you'll start to see processes unfold before they've been fully realized. And at that point, geoengineering might, not under every circumstance, as I mentioned before, it might be able to avert larger changes. You're quite right that <clears throat> taking CO2 out of the atmosphere is going to take a long time to set up the machines, build the machines, deploy the machines. Long lags, even once you get them running at a high scale, even after removing CO2, of course, there are l l large lags in terms of how changes in concentrations affect temperature. Just like right now, we haven't experienced all the temperature change associated with our historical uh, increase in greenhouse gas concentrations. So I think, Oliver, you're pointing to extra uh, drama in this uh, uh, future. But I don't think it changes fundamentally um, the options that would be available to us. What I'm basically looking at, remember that the behavior in my model is not really determined by looking at things ex post. It's all about ex ante. So I shifted from doing the ex ante analysis to then saying, okay, if we're not going to avert a catastrophe, we have to entertain the possibility that we'll have a catastrophe, and then what will we do? At the moment, as I see it, the, ch the, the case for geoengineering will be pretty strong, and I think there'll be near unanimity if there is truly a catastrophic outcome to deploy it. Very different kind of discussion than you would have today when we don't experience that same outcome. Um, and after that, you'll want to do everything you can, including air capture, but a lot of other things too, which gets to Eric's question, uh, to, to bring down concentrations. So Eric pointed to the fact that trees, uh, if you plant trees where there were no trees, trees will, uh, of course, um, eat carbon dioxide in the process of photosynthesis, um, that's a way of removing CO2 from the atmosphere. The reason I didn't emphasize it was that you have scale limitations with those um, 
those, those approaches as compared with the air capture. And the reason I would call air capture a backstop, although it's a slow uh, backstop, is that there's, there potentially there's no scale issue there. You can scale up at any level. You basically can choose with this time delay uh, the, the parts per million you want for the planet, independent of the global economic system. Okay, we'll have a second round of questions. First of all, here. Please uh, wait, 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 uh, wait, please, until the microphone comes. Um, you talk about this air capture, but you've not mentioned carbon capture and storage, which is has quite a lot of potential, surely. Yeah. So, oh, sorry. Um, we'll collect more questions. Want, yeah, let's collect one, one over there. Hi, I'm a graduate student here at the LSC. You said there would be near unanimity to employ geoengineering product, uh, projects, but I assume there would be similar, uh, depending on the size of the catastrophe, that there would be similar collective action problems. Is there, has there been any game theory work done on how big the catastrophe has to be for those problems to be overcome and comparing them with uh, the collective actions we have at the moment? Why don't we start with these two? Okay. Uh, both great questions again. So carbon capture and storage we normally think of as being used at the level of a power plant or an industrial plant. So in that case, you're taking carbon dioxide probably that is being emitted into the stack gases, and the concentration is relatively high there. So it's relatively efficient to remove the CO2 from those gases, or you can remove CO2 from the fuel before combustion. Um, the reason I didn't emphasize that was because you're, again, scale limited there. You can only reduce the amounts that you're putting into the atmosphere. You can't actually reduce the amounts that are in the atmosphere. Now, you can do other things. For example, you could take Eric's trees and you could burn the trees to produce power and then remove the CO2 from those stack gases. Okay, And in that case, when you plant the next um, crop of trees, those trees will take CO2 out of the atmosphere. The CO2, instead of being released from the stacks, you'll put down underground. So that actually will remove uh, CO2, but again, that would be scale limited. And as I said before, I think the air capture is kind of a sweet way to think about things, but I probably would want to use the term as a metaphor more than just to be taken literally. And the question on um, Collective action, geoengineering, right, very good question. Geoengineering is totally different. <laughs> okay. In fact, it has all the opposite properties of uh, what's sometimes called mitigation, reducing emissions. Um, now, it's true that if you deploy geoengineering, everyone will be affected by it. Okay. So there it's like a, reducing your emissions. The difference is that the costs are very low very low. In fact, they're so low, and I'm sure we can make them more expensive than we understand them to be today, but still, everything I've been told about this, the financial costs of actually launching this are really quite low, which means that in the world we have today, this goes back to the first question about asymmetries, there are some countries, you know, easily a dozen countries today, who could do it. And it's easy to write down a scenario in which the economics would be very strong for them to do it. So geoengineering, if you have a global catastrophe, has 
features that would make countries want to coordinate pretty quickly on avoiding this uh, problem. Where geoengineering is di more, more difficult would be with the scenario of gradual climate change. Gradual climate change, which is what we're going to see unfold over the decades to come, possibly to be interrupted by abrupt and catastrophic climate change. But the gradual climate change, the problem with gradual climate change over this century is that it produces winners and losers. Now this makes it more interesting, that's the right word, where a country that loses from climate change a lot may wish to deploy geoengineering to protect itself. But now, when it does that, it's harming the countries that actually perceive themselves, or, or even are, benefiting from climate change. Under these conditions, you actually have conflict. And certain people have talked about there being geoengineering wars. I don't see it that way. I think there will be conflict in the sense that interests will clash. But I think for the same reason, there'll be incentives to want to avert conflict. So I think there you'll, you'll uh, have some negotiation space. The case, and again, this is all speculative, the case in which I think geoengineering is m most likely to be used would, would be when a lot of countries would agree that the circumstances were so extraordinary that the risks were worth taking. One over here. Um, I would like to know, you said um, air capture is a metaphor for you, so what, it, what is, does this metaphor stand for? Because I find it a bit difficult in this context to speak of metaphors without really um, being specific about what you actually mean. I mean, do you mean it's, it's doable or not? And um, why is, why is air, um, air capture the only true backstop technology? Uh, under a scenario of gradual climate change, there could be other backstop technologies like <coughs> renewable energy, solar, for example. Good evening. Um, I'm Benny Bitzer. I launched a book uh, headed uh, um, Sleepwalking to Global Famine at uh, Columbia University not last Saturday, but the Saturday before. Um, you have approached the whole issue very much from a theoretical point of view. I would like to put to you that there are about two billion people who do not have enough to eat at the moment, and the numbers are going to increase very rapidly because food prices are going up, etc., etc. Are we not likely to face a world in which political pressure from very, very large numbers, you know, two and a half, three billion people are going to enable a small number of countries to force the majority of the big players to change their tune. Um, so I work at the UK government as well. Um, so the UK and the European Union are introducing a lot of legislation to um, tackle climate change and investment in renewables. Um, and I guess you might have some cynicism as to whether that will actually achieve anything on a global scale. Um, but I was just wondering what you thought were the kind of implications of your work for actual you know, 
UK and EU policy, what that should be, what the priorities should, should actually be? Let me, let me take these four because each one is, um, is uh, a, a great question with um, much to say about. Uh, on the metaphor, what I really mean is that we, going back to what I really started with, is to, to really grab a hold of this problem, you need to stabilize concentrations. To stabilize concentrations, you, you have to reduce net emissions to zero. You basically have to bring emissions down to zero worldwide. That is a tremendous undertaking. It's totally without precedent. Um, and I think we're going to need to use very different kinds of technologies. I also think these are early days. Uh, we're, there are, by the way, air capture works. Uh, people have used it. I have a colleague at Columbia University, Klaus Lachter, who will demonstrate his machine for you. I think he's actually brought it to London before to demonstrate. He can remove uh, CO2 from the air. And there are other people who have um, uh, pilot projects. Almost no money has been spent on R&D for this effort. It's extraordinary, by the way. And that's another way of understanding uh, the collective action problem. It's not just there hasn't been action to reduce emissions, or very little. That gets to the last question. But there has been very little investment in the new technologies we're going to need to address this problem uh, fundamentally. So what I really meant when I called it a metaphor is not that this technology doesn't exist, but that we'd be willing to do something that would be both expensive, because under those circumstances we'd be willing to pay the price, and deploy a technology that could look quite different from the kinds of technologies we're thinking about today. Now, you asked in particular about um, renewable and solar. Um, the problem with those technologies is they're also limited. For example, solar, obviously, you need to have access to the sun, which you don't have 24 hours a day, and there's not enough sun. Boy, wasn't today beautiful in London, by the way? Extraordinary. <laughs> But there's not enough sun in enough places. Another issue you have, so that, that raises questions of transmission, which is a complementary technology. And then you also have intermittency, which is a common problem with renewable energy. This, the sun's not shining all the time. It's not shining in the evening and so on. And so you need to have storage capabilities. So you're constrained on the solar by these other circumstances and complementary technologies. Another thing to bear in mind, the more effective you are with solar wind and so on, you're, what you're basically doing is you're reduce as you deploy these technologies, you're reducing the demand for fossil fuels relative to where you would have been otherwise. That's going to lower the price, which is going to make others want to use more. Don't underestimate how much fossil fuel we have. The, you know, if you wait long enough, okay, we'll, we'll be able to deal with this problem if we survive catastrophe. The problem is we need to get a grip on CO2, even while we have a lot of fossil fuel that is economic. And uh, so I don't see that these other approaches, which are worth doing and will be used, I'm not arguing against that, but I'm just saying that up against the scale of what we need to do to address this problem, I don't see the answer is lying uh, just there, for sure, just there. On the question, if I understood the question about uh, which is really about global inequities that we have a world in which a number of people live uh, very um, 
very difficult lives, difficult even to acquire nutrition and so on. Absolutely. You know, there's another aspect of this problem which, which I haven't discussed, but which I perhaps should have, which is adaptation. Now, adaptation is a little like geoengineering in the sense that it can be done unilaterally. The difference is that the benefits are almost entirely, you know, domestic. And climate will express itself very much in, you know, local impacts. But the incentives to do adaptation will be overwhelming, very powerful. If the climate is changing, we're all going to change. All of us. People will change. Uh, governments that are capable will bring about investments for local public goods. You know, again, a metaphor here would be a dike. Okay. No question about it. As you look out in the world, what do we know? Some countries are more able to do these things than others. Okay. When you see a country that has not developed, you're looking at a country that is not going to be able to adapt. Okay. I actually think that this problem will widen existing inequalities. Why? I think you're right that the disadvantaged countries will ask for assistance. They already have done, and by the way, the rich countries have pledged assistance. Okay? And they do it the same way they pledge for a two-degree target. The thing about a two-degree target, no one's responsible for meeting it. Everyone's responsible for meeting it. When you pledge to, to transfer $100 billion a year, you're not saying how much individual countries will contribute. You're not saying who's going to get the money. And you have no guarantee that the money is going to solve the problem anyway. Is it going to make these people's lives any better? It's not clear. So I think there are big problems coming up that will also involve collective action and obviously allied to issues of equity, justice, and the like. And I actually think there's a risk of widening existing inequalities, which will bring about extra tensions. I'm not convinced that because of the tensions that the richer countries are going to want to help. What they may want to do is throw up walls even bigger, do more to protect themselves. I'm not advocating any of this, by the way, but just in terms of thinking about this, it's not clear to me that this is going to bring about global solidarity. If there's an existential threat the whole world faces, absolutely. It, there, then there will be solidarity. But adaptation, what it does is it basically nationalizes the the, the climate problem. Think about it. The, if, if you can adapt, your incentive to reduce emissions is even lower. So you're going to get a widening, I think, of inequalities. The, uh, the last question about the UK. UK has got the most ambitious program, uh, to my knowledge, anywhere. And I find that ambition more than admirable, for sure. Uh, the EU has done tremendous things. The, as probably many people here know, the emissions trading scheme under the EU is you know, extraordinary. It's a great achievement. I question, and by the way, I should say, I almost always hope I'm wrong about almost everything. <laughs> because what I'm saying is not always very positive, right? But what I'm trying to do is trying to understand what we're actually seeing. So I'm trying to get at truths. And I, you know, I'm never sure I'm right. I always hope I'm wrong when the, when the results are negative. Okay, so don't, don't confuse what I want with what I'm seeing. But I think the problems we have are global. Take the, take the UK's uh, position of wanting to reduce British emissions very dramatically. You know, the problem is not just that the UK is small in proportion to the rest of the world in terms of emissions. 
It's also that the UK is enmeshed in this system of globalization and through international trade, of course, from a consumption point of view, UK emissions have gone way up. From a production point of view, they've gone down. But why should we focus on one rather than the other? It doesn't make sense. Now, globally, the two are equal. If you added all the countries up, total production would equal total consumption that drives CO2. But when you break the world up into individual countries, it makes a big difference. And I think to some extent, what will happen is that as countries try to be more ambitious, you know, one vision would be that they'd be leaders and others are going to follow them. Okay. What we've seen so far is that doesn't happen. Now, in fact, it's the opposite. What happens is others don't go forward with you, you pull back. And that's, a big, that's a big insight from game theory. It's not just what the models tell you, by the way. Okay? And, and the models tell you something, they don't tell you everything. One thing we know about human behavior, many of us um, are willing to contribute, provided enough others will contribute. Okay? And when you don't see the others contributing, people pull back. And this is what I'm afraid of. If you push out too far in front, others won't follow, you're going to slide back. I would, I would be concerned um, that some of these ambitious unilateral approaches might have to be scaled back. I don't see a way to address this problem that doesn't tackle head-on the global nature of the challenge. Now, there are strategies you can pursue in which things that one country would do would create incentives for others to want to join you. And there's always been an element of that in all the climate policies you see. Europe, for example, has a policy of reducing emissions 20% by 2020. 30% if other countries join Europe. So what they're saying is that our commitment is contingent which is what you want. This is a collective action problem. I'm willing to make a sacrifice, but only if you're willing to join me. Okay? If you look at the Copenhagen pledges that were made by individual countries, almost all the important countries, the pledges are contingent. Almost all of them. It's quite astonishing. By the way, the US one is particularly funny because, well, or sad, depending on your perspective. We do have to retain some sense of humor, though. It is important. We need that to, to, uh, to keep working on this problem. But the U.S. Uh, is the only uh, country that, whose pledge is contingent on its own behavior. <laughs> it's actually, the, the U.S. pledged to reduce emissions 70% if the Congress passed the legislation that would support that, which of course the Congress did not do. Canada, by the way, said it would do whatever the U.S. would do. <laughs> Honest. And you notice, by the way, Canada is withdrawing from the Kyoto Protocol. Okay. That's all of this is a reflection. I could go on and on and on. All of this is a reflection of the system being unable to address the collective action problem. Okay, so we will have one last uh, question here, and then I may squeeze one in <laughs> again. Hi there. Thank you for your talk. Um, I'm Jonathan Comer. I'm a PhD student here at the LSE. You mentioned the uh, lack of investment in R&D, and I mean that there's a clear collective action problem there in its own right. But you also talk about this disaggregated approach to international agreements. What role is there for maybe taking a, an agreement towards uh, R&D in this area? So Scott and, and, and mine, if I may. Uh, so like you, I'm very pessimistic. Um, but, we, but we could be wrong. I mean, I've been frequently wrong in the past. 
Um, and isn't all this talk about both adaptation and geoengineering risking that we do even less now, sort of decreasing our chances to reduce emissions? Because the two are not separate from each other, they're rather interlinked. Yeah, so again, this audience is incapable of asking a bad question. Um, R&D is hugely important. In fact, I'd say probably the biggest concern I have about our failure to do much at all for the last 20 years is not just that we haven't reduced emissions, but we haven't invested the money in R&D to open up new avenues for discovery. Therefore, we've not made the investment that would drive greater change in the future. And if you do more R&D now, and you're able, through that R&D, to lower the costs of reducing emissions in the future, you're creating a kind of a attractive positive feedback. The strategy always needs to be to create these positive feedbacks. So I mentioned before, one country reduces emissions, and through that action, the way that action was conducted, you create incentives for others to join you. That's strategic, and that'll, you know, that'll amplify, it'll reward your own actions. The same thing happens over time. That's over space, this is over time. If you take actions now that lower the cost of future generations of acting, you'll encourage them to act. Okay. So there are all sorts of reasons why we need to do this, and you're quite right, as you obviously know, that R&D itself produces, among other things, knowledge. We don't patent all knowledge for deliberately. Why? Because knowledge is an input the generation of yet more knowledge. You don't want to patent it, you want to make it available because you want to stimulate more discovery. Um, but the problem fundamentally on R&D, this is based on other work I've done, unfortunately, is the returns to doing R&D for reducing greenhouse gas emissions depend entirely on the prospects of the technologies that are developed from that new knowledge being deployed. So it always goes back to the collective action problem of reducing emissions. If you can't address that, it's going to work backwards, and it's going to make you want to invest less in R&D than you should, and I think that's why we invest so little. <coughs> Everything, in my opinion, keeps coming back. You know, this problem is so enormously complex, I could talk for hours about other aspects of the problem that make it difficult. But I really don't believe that any aspect is important is the one I've emphasized here. In terms of agreements, you can overcome the collective action problem of knowledge. We do it all the time. We have an agreement, for example, on nuclear fusion research, the ITER project. Okay. That's funded. That's working. Okay. Uh, but the reason we're doing that, it will be helpful for addressing climate change. But the reason we're doing it is that it would be helpful even ignoring climate change. And the problem is, we need research. The only reason you want to do air capture is because of climate change. <laughs> no other reason. That's why we're not doing the research. We're not putting the money into it. Carbon capture and storage. It is, in my opinion, an outrage that at this stage, we don't have lots of commercial scale, fully integrated carbon capture storage units around the world. We have had years of pledges. <laughs> I looked at this list, the carbon capture and storage plants that were scheduled. The list stays about the same, but the identities keep changing. Why? Because projects are proposed and they're canceled. And the new ones are proposed because the problem remains. And then those are canceled and so on and so forth. All of that is pointing to exactly the same problem. Carbon capture and storage is an add-on cost. You would never want to do it except if you're concerned about climate change. That's the problem. 
Yeah, solar and wind and solar. Of course we want to invest money in those energy sources. The problem is there's just so much damn fossil fuels, and we're also investing a tremendous amount of money in finding more fossil fuels, finding ways to extract it, finding ways to use it. So unfortunately, things are moving in those two directions, and we need them to move in one. Um, now, Eric raised something uh, very interesting, uh, which I've heard of many times. I should say, I've worked on this area a long, a long time. In the old days, so now I'm talking about geoengineering, it, it probably makes you uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable. Uh, in the old days, you wouldn't hear people talk about geoengineering much, but nor would you hear them mention the word adaptation very much, because if you said, well, you know, we can adapt, then certain people said, well, that's like throwing up the white flag and saying, we don't need to do much about it. Now, of course, adaptation is all the rage. Um, and when you see a bunch of climate people looking particularly cheerful, uh, they're adaptation people. Because they're looking at all the opportunities for how people can adjust and adapt, and they will. On the other hand, think about this problem. I'm not sure it's ever really portrayed this way. Global mean temperature today is somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 degrees C. Humans, our species, has evolved, and you can go back even way before Homo sapiens, has evolved in a climate that hasn't varied an awful lot from where we are today. Okay. So we've evolved for this kind of climate. Now we're talking about adding something like two degrees. By the way, you should be thinking three, four, five degrees. That's global mean temperature. We think about two degrees in London today, we say that's no big deal. But of course, what we're talking about is two, three, four, five degrees on top of 15 degrees. That's something that's quite different. You start to really understand the nature of the problem. Um, the, the, so we're going to need to have adaptation, but that is only going to buy us so much uh, time or comfort. Uh, ultimately, we have no option but to address this problem fundamentally. There is no other way to do it. The only question is going to be how we do it, or Oliver's question, if we survive to get to the point where we have the resources and capability to do it. Um, so this is view, so that's adaptation. Now with geoengineering is kind of similar because adaptation and geoengineering are both substitutes for doing the right thing, which is reducing emissions, right? They're substituting for it. If you can adapt really easily, well, we don't have to worry about reducing emissions today. Later we will, but not today. If, um, if we can do the geoengineering, we don't have to worry about reducing emissions. Okay, now some people call this moral hazard. I don't like the use of that term here at all because we normally think of moral hazard as being a contractual problem involving different parties. But here we're talking about ourselves. Okay. You really have to, it's true on the one hand that if geoengineering is an easy fix, you won't spend as much on reducing emissions. It's also true that even when geoengineering was never mentioned, we did nothing about reducing emissions. And I don't remember ever being at a meeting where someone stood up and said, you know, we don't have to fuss around with all this emission reductions. We can just use geoengineering. Yeah, okay. I don't think that's the reason we haven't acted so far. It's also true, by the way, that if we thought that geoengineering would work without too many bad consequences, actually it would be a rational thing to deploy it. I mean, think about it. It would be rational to deploy. I actually think that uh, it, that, that this, this aspect is probably not as important um, as people think. Um, I think if we were able to grab hold of and address the collective action problem, then it would be. But because we're not, 
I, I don't think that this is this is the, this is not going to hold us back. Okay. Well, this leads me to remind you that Scott's books are outside there in the mezzanine for uh, buying, if you like, and he will uh, sign it. And please join me in thanking Scott again for a most fascinating.